You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. So far uh, within this series, the cosmic cop myth, American religion myth, the uh, pink, pink plastic pansy Jesus myth. Say that three times fast. Never mind. I'm just kidding. Uh, and then uh, last week, uh, Mark Sieber did an incredible job with the uh, my personal faith myth, or my faith is personal. I, I was a little disappointed that he didn't break out in the Depeche Mode song, but, you know, maybe another time. Right, Mark? Where are you at? Yeah, there you are. Um, just to introduce myself here this morning, my name is Steve Marici. Uh, I was agnostic for the first 32 years of my life. I've been a Christian for uh, the last 28. You can do the math. I'm 60. Okay, you, you, I've been around for a while, guys. That shouldn't come as a surprise. But uh, what we're uh, going after this morning, oh, I do have one other thing I need to say. Uh, you know, this is the gratuitous grandfather plug here. Um, I think many of you, many of you may have heard or seen on social media, but uh, we have a grandson on the way. Uh, his name is Caleb, gonna be, well is, he's around, Caleb Kanan Marici. And you know, Caleb, good name, I like that, uh, in the uh, dis discovery uh, personality character stuff that we did, my uh, character most closely resembled the biblical character Caleb, so I kind of like that. Canaan, I thought, was the promised land, but for those of you that know my son, Stephen, he's a big Star Wars fan, and as we have the biblical canon, there is a Star Wars canon, and Canaan is one of the Jedi Knights or something out of the, uh, that part of the Star Wars uh, universe that I'm not super familiar with, but, you know, that's my son. So uh, with today, I'm, I'm really kind of excited about this, the whole science disproves the Bible myth. Um, it, it's, it's very interesting. I spent uh, probably more time than I should have over the last few weeks reading a bunch of different scientific papers to the point that I, I had a few nights where I didn't sleep super well, but uh, I'm not quite sure how that correlates. But anyway, a couple of basic things I want to establish before we get going is, first and foremost, the definition of a theory. A theory is an idea to explain something or set guiding principles. You know, it's kind of interesting in the, in the realm of theories, I did come across one in my... Uh, studies the last few weeks here called retrocausality. Can anybody tell me what that is? Any of the engineers out there? Oh, come on. Nobody? I am really disappointed. Retrocausality is, say you have an explosion. Where that goes is what they're claiming is that it has implications both in time forward and time backward. That that, that event goes both ways in time. Thought it was kind of interesting. Um, you know, and it's part of the whole quantum theory thing that basically proposes that the future can influence the past and the effect. So, again, I, I gave you the kind of layman's definition, what I have written down here. In essence, what happens, oh, let, me, let me just read this again here. Future can influence the past and the effect. In essence, what happens, that it happens before the cause. So if you have an explosion, it's actually taking place before it's actually happened. Okay, um, <laughs> from one of our engineers, I love it. What? Can it be proven? Can it be disproven? Well, here's the thing, only time will tell. But um bum 
So again, the theory is an idea or set of guiding principles. Fact, now, this is a little bit uh, more solid. Fact is the thing that is indisputably the case. So, the, uh, in the dictionary, I'm not quite sure why they entered into this thing, but the most commonly known fact about hedgehogs is, okay, they're, they're cute, but you know, they, that, that's, that's, that, that's in the eye of the beholder, right? They have fleas. It's provable. You grab a hedgehog, you do a little searching, they've got fleas. Now, the other thing that cracks me up today, well, actually, let me back off of that. The other thing that I find amusing today is the theory of evolution today is referred to as both theory and fact. Just Google it. I mean, well, all, there's a lot of stuff that points in that direction today. So I, it's kind of like, how can you have both fact and theory? I guess there may be aspects of it, depending upon what you're looking at. To me, it's a bit of a stretch. Personally, when it comes to the theory of evolution, I don't have a problem with it. Because if it ever is nailed down as factual, especially when it comes to the interspecies stuff, I'm sure we'll have more scientific, or more scientists coming to Christ than ever before. Amen? Well, my goal is today is to show how the following, or how following God's word allows us to break the chains of our past, live life to the full, unencumbered, and to have something more than a job, but an actual purpose in this life. Amen? So number one, I'm going to start with some scientific facts or principles. Number two, we're going to compare them with some passages from the Bible. And then we're going to look to, number three, the date of discovery by man. Go ahead and uh, throw these up on the screen here. Okay, so we have on the left-hand column, scientific fact or principle, Bible reference, and then the date of discovery by man. The earth is round. Isaiah 40, 22, you can give it a look. When did man figure it out? 15th century. We still have flat, uh, flat planet uh, people in our midst today that believe all the stuff with the circular stuff is a myth. Oceans have natural paths in them. Psalms 8, verse 8, was discovered in 1854. Earth is held in place by invisible forces, not on the back of a turtle, as many believed, up until 1650. Job 26, verse 7. Taxonomic classification of matter. Genesis 1. Man didn't really figure that out until 1735. Certain animals carry diseases harmful to man. Leviticus 11. The thing I love about this is we go back to the Levitical guidelines for dietary habits. So much of the stuff that they tell us to stay away from back then was amazingly scientific. We didn't have the means of knowing that, you know, you got to cook pork to, well, obviously that was an issue with the Jews, but you know, meat to a certain temperature to avoid potential diseases or parasites that are in certain meat and fish, especially your crustacean types, the bottom feeders. They're called bottom feeders for a reason. Anyway, uh, blood is necessary for life. Leviticus 17, verse 11. The earth was nebular in form initially. Genesis 1, verse 2. It was a shapeless void. Look it up. Man figured that out in 1911. Most seaworthy ship design ratio is 30 to 5 to 3, Genesis 6. Wasn't figured out until 1844. Radio astronomy, stars give off signals, Job 38, verse 7. 1945 is when man figured it out. Ocean contained freshwater springs, Job 38, 16. For us, 2013 and 2014. I'm going to get into a little bit more detail on that one. Infinite number of stars exist, Genesis 15:5. They kind of figured that out in 1940. And then life originated in the sea, Genesis 1. Man, not until the 19th century. 
Okay, well, uh, now it's time for the granddaughter mention. Storybots. You know, it's, it's a show she's gotten into, and it, it, if you've got little ones, it's really pretty amazing, very educational. Uh, the word taxonomy was something that I had not seen since biology and botany, both in high school and college, and that was the premise of this particular show. So we're watching Story Boss on my day off, and a little girl comes on the TV screen, and she wants to know how many animals there are in the world. You know, the Story Bots get all stirred up into Skibby, and they're with the Bible in the beginning, in the book of Genesis. We're going to look at a sample of some scientific facts or principles and compare to scripture. Now, what is taxonomy? It's a hierarchical system which is used for classifying organisms to the species level. The system is called taxonomic classification. And you can read the rest of it. It breaks into all, you know, families, kingdoms, phylum, all that. Which, uh, I'm glad I'm not in school right now. But anyway, <laughs> science asks, who is the father of taxonomy? Well, according to science, it's Carl Linnaeus, who's often called the father of taxonomy. His system for naming, ranking, and classifying organisms is still in wide use today, with a couple of changes. It's been tweaked a little bit. But to answer the little girl's question about the number of animals on the planet, you have to be able to distinguish the differences before you can classify and count. So the conclusion to the question on Storybots, it was an older show, was about 2 million, 2 million species. Now, more current science today claims that the world contains about 8.7 million species, according to a new estimate. And the thing that's really interesting about that is we'll never know in our lifetime because with the vast majority that have not yet been identified and cataloged, it could take about another 1,000 years to nail down those uh, additional species right now. So let's go ahead and start in the Bible, book of Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 20. says, Then God said, Let the water swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water. Every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas. Let the birds multiply in the earth. And the evening passed, and morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind. So we got the species thing going here, right? Livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, wild animals. And that is what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, small animals, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So, first taxonomist goes back to... Survey says, Genesis 2, verse 19, the first man. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would do, which, what was it that what Adam was going to do here? To see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but there still was no helper just right for him. So... Obviously, Eve was created to help with the administrative aspect of cataloging all these things. <laughs> help me! Come on! Where are you guys going with that? Everyone knows that the, uh, the organizational administrative uh, thing that is me is actually Jackie. So, 
Science says Carl Linnaeus is the father of taxonomy. God says, I created Carl Linnaeus and all the species he tried to classify. Oh, and by the way, Adam was given the job of naming them, so therefore Adam was the first taxonomist. <laughs> Amen? Way before Carl. So with that, science asks, who's the father of modern-day boat building? This one's kind of interesting. I know you guys know the answer to this, but I'm going to give you a little background on it anyway. God told Noah, Genesis 6:15, to build an ark that measured 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in width, and 30 cubits in height. And the slide that I had up there earlier was wrong on the ratio. It should have read 30, 50, 3. 30 to 50 to 3. Uh, I, I think I saw 5 up there. So for those of you that were paying attention, you notice it. For those of the rest of you, maybe pay a little bit closer attention. You know, we all want to be great Bereans here, right? So the ratios were 30 to 50 to 3, length to breadth to height. So until 1858, the Ark was the largest seagoing vessel of which we have any written record. Using the most conservative estimate available for a cubit, uh, it's approximately 18 inches, the ark would have been about 450 feet in length. And it would have been able to accommodate 1.5 million cubic feet of stuff. Now, in 1844, when uh, Isamard Brunel built his giant ship, the Great Britain, he constructed almost the exact same dimensions, 30 to, fi or 300, 30, to 30 to 50 to 3. As it turns out, those dimensions are perfect ratio for large boats. And we have the boat behind me here is the uh, SS Jeremiah O'Brien, that those are the exact ratios that were applied to that particular boat. Now, how did Noah know the perfect seagoing ratio to use in building the ark in the middle of the desert? <laughs> Upon whose knowledge, what other boat builder did he have the opportunity to go, I wonder what he's doing, what are the ratios he's using? What kind of wood, what kind of tar, whatever it is involved, didn't really have anybody he could go to, right? So Brunel and others like him had many, many, many generations of shipbuilders' knowledge that they were able to utilize. But Noah's craft and biblical ratios used literally were the first of its kind. So with that, while we're talking about Noah, and one of the things that is involved with Noah is water. And we know in California, something we have problems with, right? Uh, we obviously have issues in California when it comes to our storage lakes, which are disappearing. One of my favorite lakes as a kid was Lake Kachuma. It, it varies from puddle to a big puddle pretty much annually now. But our, our storage lakes are having issues. And again, there's some stuff that's pretty interesting that we can look to in the scriptures. In Genesis 7, verse 11, when it comes to the sources of water, now, you would think that that's probably finite, right? Okay, that's Probably a good assumption or a good theory to, to take a look at. Now, we do know that the earth was flooded, right? Yeah. Genesis 7, verse 11. I think I'm going to give us a little bit of scientific background as to the how. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the watery depths burst open. What does that mean? All the sources of the watery depths burst open. Now, what, what is depth? What would the depths of the ocean be? Probably underneath the water somewhere, right? If you're in shallow water, it would be whatever that deep spot is. If it's the uh, Mariana Trench, be at the bottom of that trench. So anyways, this is a little bit more background. Genesis 8, verse 1. It says, God remembered Noah as well as the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. 
The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky stopped. So we got that watery depths again. And then in Job 38, when Yahweh asked Job a series of unanswerable questions to demonstrate his sovereignty, probably in a little bit more faith, he asked Job about the springs in the sea. Job 38, verse 16. He asked him, have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? So what I would like to do is refer to a couple scientific studies that I've uh, gone through the last couple of weeks. First one is from 2013. The second one is from 2014. And with that, think about it. The last place that most of us would think that you would be able to find drinkable water is at the bottom of the ocean, right? But that's exactly what scientists have discovered. They've discovered a, a number of vast, untapped reservoirs of fresh water. And they were exploring, obviously for, for us, what's the big deal today that we look for when we're trying to make a buck? Oil and gas, right? So they're looking for oil and gas, and instead they come across these massive aquifers sitting right below the ocean floor. And according to the study, December 5th of 2013 in the Journal of Nature, Freshwater is located in the continental shelves near Australia, China, North America, and South Africa. And this is where it gets pretty crazy. Researchers estimate, now again, this isn't factual, but they estimate there's 500,000 cubic kilometers, or about 120,000 cubic miles of low salinity water holed up in the seafloor reservoirs. Wow. Needless to say, there are scientists figuring out how to get to that and get it to us, and that we do know we're fortunate, but most of the world does not have the resources we have when it comes to water. What's one of the biggest challenges with disease throughout the world today? It's unclean drinking water. So this is kind of awesome that God's got these reservoirs set for us. We got these man-made ones that are having issues and we got another source here. So, well there you go, I kind of walked through that already. Um, number two, no, I'm going to back up. That one's coming next. This one's pretty interesting, too. Number two, but according to the, uh, another article that I read in the USA Today, which comes from, oh, what the heck was the name of the article? Quantification of Water and Hydrous Ringwoodite. How many of you heard of Ringwoodite? We, we, anybody out there? Any gemologists? It's like, it's, like it has, it's, it's something that's built by the pressure of the Earth's plates pushing down, uh, kind of like the way diamonds are formed. It's very similar, but it has very high concentration of water. So with that, uh, again, the, 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 according to the article published in the USA Today from the scientific journal that I just read, evidence of water beneath Earth's surface could alter the understanding of the composition of the planet and how its oceans form. Researchers have discovered evidence of water enough to fill oceans embedded in minerals deep beneath the surface of the United States that could alter the current understanding of the Earth's composition and how it was formed. And we'll, I'll just leave it from there. We've got a, there's a whole bunch of information. If you want the paper, I can send it to you. I was going to have uh, Dan Rowley come up and read one of the uh, uh, equations on it that explained the percentages and that whole bit. I didn't have an opportunity to have him take a look at it beforehand. I can't make head or tail of it other than that there's more water in ringwoodite than anybody ever imagined. Okay. This one I love. This one is amazing. Progress in biophysics and molecular biology, the cause of the Cambrian explosion, terrestrial or cosmic. It's a cool title, right? Yeah, well, I'll go there in a minute. 
So basically, we have this international group of scientists that suggest that octopi might actually be aliens. And you know what? Whatever. That's what they came up with. That's what they're thinking. I'm not going to, you know, do anything other than present it. You know, it does sound like they, they, they were a little late when it comes to the movie Arrival. But anyway, so the premise, you know what? I'm just going to read it. I'm just going to read it. Okay. It was a, a 50-page document. I, I highlighted some of the highlights. But wow. <laughs> bum says, many of these unearthly properties of organisms can be plausibly explained if we admit the enlarged cosmic biosphere that is indicated by modern astronomical research. Discoveries of exoplanets already discussed. The average distance between habitable planets in our galaxy now is to be reckoned in light years, typically five light years. Virian gene exchanges thus appear to be inevitable over such short cosmic distances. Now, I, I just got to do this. I don't know what it is. One of you guys probably does, but hold on a sec here. Siri. Hey, Siri. How many miles in five light years? Five light years is 29,392,499,071,050.07 miles. Thank you, Siri. <laughs> okay. Science at its best, right? Now, do you think there's a reason they said five light years versus 439 trillion, however many it was, miles? Okay, they go on to say that given the complex set of new genes in the octopus, it may not have come so solely from horizontal gene transfers or simple random mutations of existing genes or by simple duplicative expansions, it is then logical to surmise, given our current knowledge of biology of comets and their debris, the new genes and their viral drivers most likely came from space. This evidence provides, evidence? This evidence provides, and beyond our immediate, oh no, this evidence provides for and allows the study of cosmic gene pools, and these are capable of driving, dare we say, dare we say, controlling and thus steering biological evolution here on Earth. Wow. Ooh, ah, ooh, right? Okay, so we got all these scientists that signed off on it. Again, what they're saying is this is international group of scientists suggests that octopi might actually be aliens. And now with that, this just kind of gives us an idea on science. Science definitively serves a purpose. We just saw that with Siri. You know, I, I don't know if there were too many guys back in the first century that were able to get that kind of information by just asking a phone. So we have progress in biophysics and molecular biology, the cause of the Cambrian explosion, terrestrial or cosmic. A few months later, there was a, a, an article, it was a little contrarian that came out that was entitled, With New Theory of Cambrian Explosion, Scientists Reach, Literally, for the Stars. And in this new article, the, uh, the article, they, they just came out with, well, I'll just read it. It says the uh, Cambrian, well, for those of you that don't know, Cambrian explosion refers to the sudden appearance of the fossil record we have on Earth all the complexities, all the different animals and organisms that came out of that period of time. So, no, that would, that would be the, form, the uh, formation of the planet. Cambrian thing's a little bit different, but anyway. So, listen to the specifics of the argument. The information needed to build complex life arrived on Earth before complex life arose. <laughs> Scientific paper, let me read it again. The information needed to build complex life arrived on Earth 
before complex life arose. In other words, now we can make the plausible scientific argument that a key feature of information-dense genetic systems to make more complex organisms was already here on Earth before the actual emergence of subsequent greater terrestrial complexity. Now, I, you know, I, I, I love sci-fi. I've been a huge science fiction fan since I was a kid. So much of what I read as a kid is actual science fact today. But how many planets vomit? I mean, okay, we, 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 putting the five light years of the 439 trillion miles away, how does biological material escape a point? Well, you know what? I actually, I, I just got newsflash. Maybe there is a Death Star. <laughs> Maybe there is a planet destroyer out there. But, you know, with thinking this through for, for, again, 439 trillion miles, and they're claiming that RNA, DNA, and caspids, which is the protein shell that encompasses all that, can travel all that distance through space and give us octopi here on Earth. And maybe that's the case. But is it a fact? Is it, a, is it proven? And should something like that shake your faith? But it's amazing how we can look to certain things and we hear different arguments or people make a case for something and we allow that to rock our faith. Why? I mean, God's created it all. If he created all the stars and the universes, I guess he could probably come up with some means of transporting whatever experimentation he did somewhere else to the earth. But you know what? What bearing does that have on my life? What bearing does that have on salvation? What bearing does that have on each and every one of us who've been baptized into Christ, who've become disciples, to allow stuff like that to shut us up? This is where we've got to be careful. You know, regarding all these various scientific facts and theories, why does science mess some of us up? The Bible isn't a science book. Although there are scientific facts in it, it is not a science book. The Bible's not a history book, even though there are provable historic elements. It's not a geography book, even though there are references to places throughout the Bible that we know have been verified or can identify. There was even a study here recently trying to dismiss the Bible, saying that there was no way that the early Israelites actually had camels because they weren't domesticated back then. I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? And of course, there was a paper that followed up stating that the, the measures they used, they, they calculated incorrectly with the measures they used and the data they had with the carbon data method that was utilized to come up with those dates. But there were people that were in uproar. It's like, oh my gosh, the camels, they, they were wild camels. They, they weren't using camels to transport stuff. I mean, come on. And it's just, we've got to be careful. It's not a science book. It's not a history book. It's not a geography book. It is the Word of God. It's an autobiography. It's God's story about himself and how he wants us, you and me, to be part of it. It's God's story of his love for his people. His longing for all mankind to be saved. It's a love story. It's God's love story to humanity. And you know what? Time has no effect on God's account of himself. Malachi 3, verse 6, and Hebrews 13, verse 8, declare that God is the same always and never. He never changes. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, he's always the same. No matter how the world changes around us, we can trust God is consistent. History is still being written. Geography changes. If you're a realtor, you know how that works. 
You got a river out front, you may not have property tomorrow. It's always in a state of flux. Theories come and go. Wasn't that long ago, as we stated earlier, that you know, scientists thought the Earth was flat. Every time there's a paper on science that's published, there are just as many others that are no longer relevant or just plain incorrect or nothing more than theories. So I, I googled the top uh, 12 biographies. Whoops, I didn't want to do that. Let's see if I can bring those back. Well, you saw uh, we've got Obama, we've got Malcolm X, <laughs> Mark Twain, Ozzy, Obama, Adolf Hitler. There we go. Top 12 biographies. Looking at the individuals up there on the screen. Are we going to go to any of them for science? Why not? Why not? Why not? They're biographies. They're about people. Now, Ben Franklin, we know, you know, he's got some names. He was, you know, father of this, that, and the other with some of his inventions and observations. But here's, here's something you'll find interesting. I, I found this very interesting. List of top 12 biographies, autobiographies. We're not going to look to any of these approved or disproved scientific fact statements or hypothesis, right? And again, with Franklin, you know, maybe, but I'd like to reference an article from the New York Times, June of 1983. You're not going to believe this, but even Benji got it wrong sometimes. No. Ben Franklin and King George rarely saw eye to eye on anything, including lightning rods. Franklin believed right, lightning rods should have sharp tips, the sharper the better. So Franklin had a theory on lightning rods. King George, who often felt like telling Ben to go fly a kite, I didn't write this, okay? Disagreed and had his pals equipped with blunt rods. And so the Americans and the British went their separate ways, not only politically, but on the relative merits of lightning rod configuration. It thus comes as something of a bolt out of the blue to learn that American scientists are now conceding that Franklin, the authority on electricity and the inventor of the lightning rod, was wrong. Well, George the Monarch, with an interest in technology but no particular expertise, was right. Experiments in recent years show that blunt-tipped rods suitably grounded are more effective than the sharply pointed ones in the routing of lightning harmlessly to the earth by double what a pointed lightning rod would do. So, you know, just thinking this through, when I looked at the uh, writers of the Bible, they weren't inspired by the Holy Spirit to write a science book. What good would a science book written 2,000 years plus older do us today? Science shifts by the minute. God's word is concrete for eternity. The Bible, again, was written as an autobiography by a loving God pursuing a relationship with his sons and daughters and offering healing, healing from the brokenness of the human condition. Life to the full for eternity. So, what then should disciples do when we encounter a scientific theory that appears to conflict with Scripture? First, take a deep breath, you can relax. And don't be afraid that the scientific theory is in question is going to disprove Christianity. God is the source of all truth. That's right. And ultimately, there won't be any real conflict between what God reveals in Scripture and what is true about His created works. Number two, we need to remember that God is the ultimate authority, and if there turns out to be a real conflict between the scientific theory in question and the actual teaching of Scripture, the scientific theory is the scientific theory is wrong, the wrong emphasis when it comes to 
Again, what do we know about theory? They're, they're guiding principles. It's not, it's not based in fact. It's something that, basically, theories are out there to either be proven or disproven. This means we need to do thorough and careful examination of both the scientific theory and the biblical exegesis to discover the source of the conflict. We must make sure we're dealing with the actual teaching of Scripture, and we must examine the evidence for the scientific theory in question to discover whether we're dealing with something that is true about God's creation or something that is merely speculation. And this is why I was agnostic for a large portion of my life, because I had never actually been into the Bible I just knew the period of time that it was written, and it's like, what in heaven's name could this, how would this apply to my life today? What good could guys 2,000 years plus old have to offer me? But it wasn't until I got into the scriptures that I realized, you know, there's something to God, this God thing. There's something to the, the, the things that I was reading. And I, again, really understand, you know, you may not, you may not care, you could probably care less about, you know, that paper or, or that paper. Some of us do. I mean, this stuff intrigues me. And the thing that I love about science, the deeper I go down that rabbit hole, the more the Bible stands up for me personally. So just thinking that through, all this hard work takes time. Ultimately, if you do want to go down that rabbit hole, don't jump to hasty conclusions and then use those conclusions to try and convince others. You know, I, I know our live ministries, we're waiting for some Christian apologetics. Uh, you'll be getting it in a few weeks here. Hopefully, this helped with some of that today. And again, what, what is apologetics? It's from the Greek. What it means is speaking in defense of. It's, you know, religious discipline of defending religious doctrine through systematic argumentation and discourse. And I think for me personally, one of the best arguments or defenses for Christianity isn't our verbal defense as much as it is our lives. And we've got to ask ourselves this in the workplace. What are we saying versus what we're doing? Teens in the classroom, what are we saying versus what are we, what are we doing? Wherever we go in our community, what are we saying versus what we're actually doing? That is the best argument for Christianity is what we do. What are we modeling for other people? I've got a quote here. So it's from uh, Mahatma Gandhi. I like your Christ, but not your Christianity. In these words of Mahatma Gandhi, Dr. J.H. Holmes summed up the Indian leader's view of Christianity in an interview with a Chrism reporter January 11th of 1927. Dr. Holmes, professor of philosophy at Swarthmore College and a member of the Society of Friends, had just completed a tour around the world. He had several opportunities of conversing with Gandhi and Gandhi took the ideas of Christ and he tried to implement them by faithfully adhering to Hinduism. But he did not realize there were forces already at work in his lifetime converting the Hindu religion to Hindutva, a fanatic ideology developed by radical Hindus who ultimately murdered Gandhi. Continuing Gandhi's words, Dr. Holmes said, I believe in the teachings of Christ, but you on the other side of the world do not. I read the Bible faithfully and I see little in Christendom that those who profess faith pretend to see. The Christians, above all others, are seeking after wealth. Their aim is to be rich at the expense of their neighbors. They come among aliens to exploit them for their own good, and they cheat them to do so. Their prosperity is far more essential to them than life, liberty, and the happiness of others. In the 20s, 
You know, the thing with Gandhi that's interesting, and I've shared this before, is he was invited out to a Christian church. He was turned away because of the color of his skin. So when it comes to things like science, we need to understand that the Bible is not a science book. It is a life book. Gandhi knew of Christ in the scriptures. What would have happened if Gandhi had experienced true Christianity? If he witnessed a true disciple, a real man walking with God, living as Jesus did. And the thing that's so awesome about this is we're in this realm. To this day, if applied, it changes lives. How many of us can attest to that here? The Bible changes lives. Hebrews 4 verse 12 reads, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. This is why it had an impact on me, this agnostic guy at the age of 32, seeing Christianity modeled, not being told what I need to do as a Christian, but seeing Christianity modeled was the thing that had an impact on me. That's the thing that slowed me down enough to say, you know what? Maybe I need to take a look at this Bible. Maybe science doesn't have all the answers. Every single person here that's become a disciple of Jesus Christ can share the changes that have taken place in your life because of the Word of God. Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect, the will of God. Science books didn't change me. History books didn't change me. College, self-help books, business books, none of those books are living active in my life. They all become dated. None of those books changed me, but the living word of God did. And God's word is every bit as alive today as it was when it was written. I had one of the foulest mouths on the face of the planet. My two-year-old was using the F word. That should be enough to change me, right? How many of you want to be out in public with your two-year-old dropping F-bombs? And we tried. You know, needless to say, it wasn't his peer group. Well, it was his peer group. Well, we weren't really peers, but it was his group, our family. That was the kind of interaction that was going on here. Not to mention how destructive it is for the two of us to be on the receiving ends of those types of interaction. We find each other. We would hit each other. You know, kind of wake up there. What are you doing using this language? I mean, we came up with all kinds of things to try and curb it. And it wasn't until I realized that Jesus Christ not only died for my adultery, but he died for my foul mouth, that I was able to change it. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the power of the direction that God gives his creation on how to conduct themselves. And it gives us the opportunity to live life to the full. I look back at the carnage that took place in the first 32 years of my life because of how self-focused I was and science-focused. I thought I had all the answers. Again, there's a place for it. I I don't think uh, when it comes to sickness or disease and we look to science and doctors that we take issue with it. But when it comes to how we need to conduct our lives and when it comes to things like eternity, all doctors can do is prolong the life. It's still finite. God gives us the ability to live for eternity. Hebrews 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, 
Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. You know, with the advances in science today, we know that if you go after something long enough, if you change what goes in, change will take place. It's called neuroplasticity. I got to a point because of what I saw in others that I had the faith that by applying God's word to my life, God would change me. God would transform me. And you know what? It's still going on today. He's still changing me. He's still growing me. He's still stretching me. And the Bible story, his word, God's word builds faith, which leads to change. In John 8, verse 51, we're going to close here. It doesn't come in the form of a hypothesis or theory, but in the form of a closed end statement of fact. John 8, verse 51. I tell you for certain that if you obey my words, you will never die. I'm going to put forth a theory here this morning. If we don't know Jesus' words, we can't obey him, and therefore we will die. Now, the only factual proof of that will take place after we've died. But I believe God's word. I believe the truth that's put forth here. His word is living and active and leads to a changed life now and for eternity. You know, if you're a guest with us today, and not quite sure if you're living in accordance with what Jesus established, Turn to the person to your left or your right and tell them you want the hard facts so when you're asked about where you're going to spend eternity, you can give them a definitive, concrete answer as to what the outcome of your life will be. As a disciple, if you strayed, it's pretty simple. It's called a mind change, metanoia, repentance. And we know the transformation happens when we're in God's word and embrace his story for our lives. Faith comes from hearing the word. The word builds faith, which leads to change. And what that leads to is whoever obeys it ultimately will spend eternity in heaven with God. God bless. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.